As we begin reading in the book of Genesis, chapter 40 and verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all the servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And that would go on for about two years. He did not remember Joseph until Pharaoh had a dream. So let's skip down to verse 14 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, and seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the green grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to point overseers over the land, and to take one-fifth of the produce from the land of Egypt, during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it, that the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of the famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. He said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I got a kick out of my son Dan a while back. We were working on his house. He has this old house that was built in 1900. He, for a long time, he was living on just the main floor and just recently moved into the second floor because we were redoing the second floor. I was there helping him install flooring, and his father-in-law was there working also. And I don't think you've ever met his father-in-law, but Dave Moline, he's the guy that I went to uh, Ukraine with a couple of years ago. And 
Dave loves classical music. He gets season tickets to all the classical music events or whatever down in the cities, and, and he takes youth group to him, some of them with him, and uh, older people in his church to some of them with him, and he just really loves to kind of introduce people to classical music as much as he can. We were there working on the floor, and Dave was there helping also, and he was talking about funerals, because I had to get back home to do a funeral later that day, and, and David said, when I die, he says to Dan, he says, I hope you guys have more to say than, boy, he sure loved classical music. And Dan says, when you die, the only thing that's going to be said about classical music is there's a lot of it for sale. Because <laughs> Dave's very proud of his uh, classical music collection. <laughs> I about busted a gut. <laughs> I was cracking up. But, <laughs> but you can kind of see where our family fits in the classical music thing by Dan's thing a little bit more maybe. But I've never been a real big classical music guy. But I do got to admit, when... Back when Zach was in plays and stuff at Northwestern, and we'd go down to watch him when he was in college there, they had a, a orchestra pit down underneath the stage. And when we were there at his plays, they'd have a full orchestra under there playing all the music for the plays. And it was impressive. It's just really something really cool to see all those different instruments and somebody up there leading them. And when he points at this one, that's when it starts in and they all chime in at just the right time and everything just comes together perfectly and beautifully. It's a, it's a pretty awesome thing. It's impressive. Well, the reason I bring that up this morning is because I, I think I'm seeing a little bit of that in God here this morning as we look at this. Because as we've been studying life of Joseph and the different things that have happened in his life, it seems that everything's starting to kind of come together. And the emphasis of these chapters is definitely the work of God. He's going to bring a plague, and before that he's going to bring these years of prosperity, and he's going to bring through the plague a way of salvation, which is going to happen in Joseph, and he's bringing everything together for just the right time. And it's like he's just kind of taking, okay, you move here, this comes here, everything's in place here. He's going to let Pharaoh know at just the right time. Joseph's just waiting for his cue to come in, and then he's going to be called up to Pharaoh, and then everything's going to be taken care of, and it's going to go like clockwork. And the only one that knows is God. But it's just an amazing to see how everything just comes together. As we've already recognized, Joseph probably through a good part of his life up to this point, because this takes 13 years. Remember, he's 17 years old when his brothers sell him into slavery. He's 30 when he's put in charge at Pharaoh's. I'm sure for most of that 13 years, it kind of looked like Joseph's life was more falling apart than coming together, but it wasn't. It was, it was coming together. And that's what we want to consider this morning is this life orchestrated by God. In this passage, we see nothing different really than we've seen in Joseph's life already. And that is somebody doing bad things to Joseph and God takes even those things and works them in together for good to bring about his final purpose and the goodness of Joseph and the goodness of the world even. You know what I find it very encouraging is that every harmful thing that was done to Joseph by somebody else, God wasted none of them. Every one of them was part of the solution that God's headed to at the end. In our lives, it's the same way. But God's promises in Romans chapter 8 that he will take all things and work them together for our good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. It's nice to know that when you're mistreated or when people rise up against you, God is not going to waste any of those. He's going to use even those, every one of them, to bring around about your good and benefit you in some way. And I find that just super Encouraging. Well, as we consider this life orchestrated by God, there are three different ways that we see God's orchestration uh, spelled out within these two chapters. The first one is that we see God's acts. When Joseph first hears about that these people had dreams, what is his immediate response? 
uh, the interpretation of dreams belong to God. God will know. God can act on this. What, what was a dream about? Later on, when we get up into chapter 41, it really emphasizes it. When we get up to verse 25, it says, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 28, he tells him the same thing that he's shown to Pharaoh, what he is about to do. And then he points out that the fact that there were two dreams, God is just showing you that he's determined this, and this is what he's going to do, and he's going to do it very quickly. So the whole thing is focused on what God is doing within not just Joseph's life, but the whole land, which includes Joseph's life, at this passage. And that is the fact that God is doing something here. God is acting. There's going to be years of plenty that are coming, then years of famine, and through all that he's going to bring the salvation, and we just get to see God orchestrating all the events to fulfill his perfect will at that time. You know, in the book of Psalms, it tells us that that's exactly the point. In Psalm chapter 105, verses 16 through 22, says, When he summoned a famine on the land, he broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Even in the Psalm 105, it recounts this time. And he says, God brought about a famine, but before he did, he already had the person that was going to deliver them from the famine in place to deliver them. It always raises a question when you think about that, and that is, why would God bring a famine? As we consider our lives being orchestrated by God, why would he allow hardships into our life if it's all orchestrated by God? Well, part of it goes all the way back to earlier in the book of Genesis where mankind rebelled against God and ate from the tree that we weren't supposed to, and we brought the sinful experience into our lives. And because of that, there is sickness and there is death. But you know what? Even in that, God has a purpose. The book of James tells us that whenever we face trials of many kinds, that we know that God is using those to strengthen us, to build endurance. The coach will put us through hard things in order to build strength for the competition. Professors will put us through hard mental tasks and homework in order to build knowledge and a better education. God is doing the same thing. The fact of the matter is if we have it smooth and easy all the time, we're not going to be people of much character. We need to be tested. We need to be pushed. We need to have challenges that we overcome to strengthen us, to build us up. F.B. Meyer put it this way. He said, do not flinch from suffering. Bear it silently, patiently, and resignedly. And be sure that it is God's way of infusing iron into your spiritual life. The world wants iron dukes, iron battalions, iron sinews, and nerves of steel. God wants iron saints. And since there is no way of imparting iron into the moral nature, but by letting people suffer, he lets them suffer. You know, the hardships and the struggles that we go through have a way of strengthening us, putting that iron inside of us, making us strong. And so when we look at these things in Joseph's life, it says in Psalm 105 that God tested him in these things. It talks about a collar being on him and chains on his ankles and the pain that it caused. And the things that Joseph suffered built him up. And so that God had him when just at the right time, he was in the right strength of character. He was the right kind of person and he was in the right place to be able to bring the salvation from the famine that the world desperately needed at that moment. The acts of God are similar in our life. We go through struggles and strifes and we have challenges to overcome because God is using them to build our strength of character so we're the right kind of person. 
and He orchestrates the events in our life so we're in the right places at the right times to use that strength of that right character that He's building within us to be a blessing to other people. You know what? Joseph has given us that little picture. Remember what God had promised Abraham in the covenant? Going to reach out to the world. Joseph is already delivering the world from this famine. A little picture of what Jesus will do when He comes to deliver the world from their sin. Well, not only do we see that God acts, but we also see something else in all these dreams is that God reveals. Our God is a revealing God. He reveals Himself to His creation. That's really just common sense when you think about it. If God's going to go to all the bother of creating all this, and if He is God, which means He governs all things and rules all things, then wouldn't you think He would let us know who He is? And that's exactly what we find in God, is that He's continually revealing Himself to us. He's given us a pretty thick book to do it, as He's given us His Word down through the ages. And you know what? We're looking at a time that didn't have the book yet. What did they have back at that time? Well, they would have had some oral tradition. They would have had probably the same things that we've been reading through the book of Genesis. They would have known because it would have been handed down orally from generation to generation through their family. So there's a little bit of oral tradition here. And then also the dreams that God was guiding them with. And so we see God revealing himself over and over. It's emphasized that Joseph answered Pharaoh in verse 16 of chapter 41. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh the favorable answer. In verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. In verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh. He repeatedly points out to Pharaoh that that those interpretations belong to God. God is revealing to you what he is about to do. We live in a blessed time in this world because we live in a time in this world where the Word of God is so readily available to us. You realize up until about the 1600s, there was no printing press. So you know what kind of effort it took to get a Bible in your house? And now we live in a day where I don't know how many copies of the Bible I have. And we've got copies of the Bible everywhere. You know, I always used to have different, different Bibles. I'd have one Bible that sat on the dash of my truck and maybe another one that stayed in the car. And so just whenever I was somewhere, a Bible was close by. So if I had time to read it, I could. You know what? Now they're just in your pocket. We have apps, Bible apps on your phone that are incredible. And, and so no matter where you're at, you always got your Bible with you. You can, you can take it out and read it. You can learn from it. Not only that, we have resources. If you go online, even through some of those apps, there's so many resources out there that will help guide you through the Bible and teach you what it's saying and what it means and what it's about and commentaries and maps and all kinds of stuff right at the tip of our fingers. They never had that. It came so slow through time and incrementally so that at the time of Joseph, he didn't even have the book of Genesis to read. We know that because he's in the book of Genesis. But you know what? At that time, God was revealing himself through these dreams. And so as we consider that idea, you know, the Bible tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that God has revealed Himself to us. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Within that Bible, it's completely sufficient to know what God wants us to do with our lives and to, be, to, to experience salvation and to experience Christian growth so that we can be completely equipped to do every good work that God wants us to do. I think of the same thing that's emphasized in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need for the life that God has given us to live, to be able to live that out in a godly way, a God-honoring way, that we get all of it through God's power. His divine power has given us everything we need to live that kind of life. Now, how do we get it? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
So the more we know God, the more we're able to tap into His power and strength to live that godly life. Well, where do we get the knowledge of God? He says, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So you see what he's saying there is, look, we have everything that we need to live this godly life. How do we get it? Through our knowledge of God. Where do we get that? Through His great and precious promises. He's revealed Himself to us to such an extent that within His Word covers everything that we're ever going to need to know to be able to experience salvation and live out our life before God. Now, as I look through the passage here in in Genesis chapters 40 and 41, uh, it begs a larger question. I find myself, and I'm not the only one with the question, I was wrestling with it, and I noticed as I went to different commentaries that other commentators had the same question. And that is, why so much detail? All right, chapter 40 is about the cupbearer and the baker. And they have dreams, and Joseph answers their dreams. And really, what is the point? At first, when you're reading through that, you think that the whole point is, well, now that he's interpreted their, their dreams, the cupbearer gets restored back to Pharaoh. And so that's how Pharaoh is going to find out about Joseph, who's down in prison, to be able to come up and interpret the dream. And that's all very true. But chapter 40 could be a whole lot shorter if that was all it was about. All it would need to say is, there was a guy in the prison, he had a dream, Joseph interpreted it, and then he went back to work for Pharaoh, and then two years later he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. But it gives all this detail. Why the detail? Well, I do think we have to be careful. Because I don't think that every de- everything everywhere in the Bible always has some hidden meaning or anything, and I don't want to lead us down that kind of a direction. I think we've got to be careful in our interpretation. We don't want to make the Bible say more than what it says. But at the same time, I think that there might be some more detail in here that it gives us a fuller picture of what is being revealed to us on a different level. And the reason I think that is because of Luke. Chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, speaking of Jesus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The point Jesus is making to him is all through the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, it's about him. He tells the Pharisees the same. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But those are what testify about me, yet you will not come to me that you might have life. And so repeatedly, Jesus makes the comment that through the Old Testament, that it continually points to Christ. I think within this passage, we see exactly that happening. In 1 Peter, he also tells, teaches something about the word of God. He says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things to which angels long to look. Now, see what the point he's making. Because we always study the scripture very carefully, keeping in mind the author's intent. It's always our goal. Seek first to find what it meant to them before you know what it meant to you. But it says that when God was giving his word through those prophets, even they recognized there was more to their prophecy than they knew. That's why it says they studied their own writings. 
because it came from God, not from them. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. So they recognized that God, more than just speaking to their moment and their time, was also speaking to our moment and our time. And was also talking about something that was going to happen in the future as Christ would come to suffer and to die on that cross for us and to rise again from the dead. That's all in there. But they couldn't see it clearly. We, looking back on it, can see it clearly. They couldn't see it so clearly. And so when we look at this passage and the details that are within this passage, here's my question. We can see that God is orchestrating all these things taking place, down to quite the details. Now, what about the details? Is it a coincidence that it was a cupbearer and a baker that ended up in the prison there with Joseph? And is it a coincidence that it would be three days before they would both be raised up to be brought out of the jail? Is it a coincidence that the baker is going to be hung on a tree? We didn't really need this much detail if it's just showing us how Joseph miraculously ends up being second in command of all Egypt. Jesus, what did He do? Just as Joseph asked Him, please remember me when you get back to Pharaoh. Jesus asked us, please remember me. And what does He want us to remember Him with? He wants us to remember Him with the cup and the bread as He went to the tree and was hung on the tree on our behalf to pay for our salvation. And so all these details, I think, were put in there, not even for Moses' time. I think it's as First Peter was saying, it was for, for us, for later, that we can see that this continually points us to Christ, Joseph as a, as a symbol of Christ coming to save the world, to reach out to the whole world through the covenant of Abraham, through the promise of Abraham, to be a Savior to the world, and that mirrors that. But even these little details, I think all of it points us forward and reveals to us Jesus Christ. Well, then also we see that God blesses. During the time of plenty, Joseph would have two sons. With Manasseh, he says that God has made me forget. He's gone through all this misery, being turned upon, being falsely accused, sold by his brothers, uh, traded as a slave, falsely accused, thrown into prison, all these things that have happened, forgotten for two years. And in the end, he says, you know what? God has made me forget. His life now is second in command in Egypt, and and he's married and has a family, and he's blessed by God and, and being a blessing to the world. And I don't think he's saying that he never remembers it anymore. I think he's saying, I've moved on. Life is good. And that's what God does with us. Life is good. And then his next son comes along and he's saying, God has blessed me. He's caused me to increase. He's caused me to have success. There's a pattern. What do we see in Joseph's life? We see this pattern. He was humiliated. He was brought low. And then he was exalted. And that's important. We need to not miss that. Because that's a pattern. That's a theme throughout Scripture that we see. We see it in Jesus Christ. It reminds us of Him. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it talks about Christ. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So you see what it takes Jesus, who started out, he was very God. And he decided to leave all that. He didn't cling to it, say, no, I'm not going. He let go of all that, emptied himself, and entered our experience, became a man. And then as a man, he became a servant, 
humbled himself to be a servant, and he humbled himself even to the point of the experiencing death and death on the cross, which was designed to humiliate you. They paraded you through, through town, basically to say, look what happens to you if you mess with us. And then they hung you on a cross, left you up there in front of everybody. Jesus Christ experienced all that humiliation. But look at the very next verse. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, Jesus Christ humbled Himself and brought Himself low, and God exalted Him. Don't let it confuse you when you're all about living for the resurrection and you're experiencing some suffering. It's not foreign. It's not out of place. God allows us the humility of the suffering, preparing us for the exaltation of the resurrection in our lives.